Let us uh, continue our series in Luke's Gospel by turning again to the, the 11th chapter of Luke, beginning with verse 14 through verse 28. A very serious text indeed from God's Word this morning. Will you pray with me? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Indeed, it is the desire of every Christian heart that the name of our Savior be exalted in the world. And we would pray that it would be exalted. The name of our Savior, the glory of our Savior, the wonder, the beauty of our Lord, the loveliness of Christ, that it would be exalted this morning in our service of worship. But we pray also, Heavenly Father, that always, whether it is the joy or the depth or the wonder, but always the seriousness of the gospel will come through the preaching of his word to the people of God. And for those who are here today who have no saving relationship with Jesus Christ, this word indeed is serious. And we would ask that lost ones would be called out of darkness and brought into the light of the Son of God, that they would worship the one who rose from the dead with healing in his wings and would know that the love of God that passes all understanding can be theirs as they fellowship with the one who loved sinners like us and gave himself on the cross. These things we ask and pray asking that the Holy Spirit who wrote this book, gave this book by divine inspiration, will now illumine its page and keep our focus upon it. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's Word? Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 14. This is the Word of God. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke And the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and every divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person that passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, 
and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, this is an exhilarating but also a very solemn text. Here we see the wonder of true conversion, but we also see the apostasy of false conversion. The background, of course, the Lord Jesus heals and people confess, but the Pharisees accuse and they identify the spotless work of the spotless Son of God with Satan. He answers by saying, internal strife will destroy a kingdom. If this were the work of Satan, he would be casting out himself and destroying his own destruction. If your sons cast out demons, which they attempted to do by superstitious rites, if they cast out demons, and I do this to the destruction of Satan's kingdom, by whom do your sons cast them out? And they would answer, by God, and their whole argument, of course, would fall apart. He says, listen, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you need to understand the kingdom of God has come upon you. You need to understand who I am. I am the one who is bringing the saving power of God into this world. And Jesus speaks of the condition of the lost and of true conversion and false conversion by continuing to use the Pharisees' reference to the evil one and his kingdom. And so I want us to first see in this text the condition of the lost, the condition of the lost. The lost are indwelt by the devil. In verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Now, by indwelt by the devil, I'm not talking about demon possession. I'm saying that the devil, his imps, his evil ones, his influences control every lost heart. And Jesus is bringing that out when he speaks of the heart as the devil's dwelling or his palace. Now, is this language too strong? No, it is not too strong. It comes from the lips of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul speaks of the spirit that also is at work in the children of disobedience from whom we have been delivered. The devil is called in this passage a strong man. Who of the sons of Adam can resist him unaided? He hates, he knows how to tempt, he knows how to destroy the souls of sinners. We have souls that can be saved or lost for eternity. Those who are outside of Christ also are overwhelmed by the devil. Notice again how it's put in verse 21. When a strong man, and the strong man, of course, is the devil and his influence. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. The devil has strength to keep his prey. From the start, he overcame the human race by lies. He makes ugly things seem lovely and attracted. He is well-armed. Indeed. Do you remember how Bunyan put it in the Pilgrim's Progress? Children, he wanted to describe the ugliness, but also the power of the evil one, and he put it this way. Now, the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion." 
And so he overwhelms the hearts of unbelievers and controls them. If we were to take the time to describe that bondage, the bondage of the will, the bondage of the heart to sin, our depravity, indeed, we could go from Scripture to Scripture, because behind it all is the devil. To the Pharisees, Jesus said, ye are of your father, the devil. But also it's true of the unbeliever that he is undisturbed, ultimately speaking, in his condition. Indeed, in verse 21, the strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace and his, his goods are safe. He doesn't have to worry about his goods. He doesn't have to worry about his prey. They're completely at his disposal under his power. And so the law of God is preached and it makes no saving impression. The judgment to come makes no saving impression. The gospel makes no saving impression, perhaps a passing impression, But the love of God in the cross, even proclaimed, has no saving impression because the evil one's goods are safe. I've told you this before, but I come to this memory a lot in my thinking. When I was downtown a number of years ago, and I was speaking to a shopkeeper about the gospel, and this this woman was very patient to listen to me, and I described to her the wonder of what Christ did when he came into the world to save sinners, went to our cross and died for sinners, and rose from the dead so that we might have a relationship with God. And at the end of my discussion or my proclamation of the gospel to her, she looked at me and she said, why ever would I want this? Well, that's the heart that is under the control of the devil and his goods are safe. The devil, according to verse 21, guards his own palace. Charles Spurgeon said, you might find sleeping saints, but never sleeping devils. The devil says, peace, peace to the unconverted heart that knows no peace. Just trust me as I lead you to eternal ruin. Don't let your conscience bother you. Just drown it out. Roland Hill is a name with which some of you are familiar. He's sometimes called the second Whitfield. He was looking out of his study window one day, and he saw a man behind the man. He was going to the slaughterhouse behind the man were a a row of pigs following along. And so he left his study, went out, found the man coming out of the slaughterhouse. He said, how did you get those pigs to follow you into the slaughterhouse? He said, oh, simple. I just dropped food as I went along. I gave them what they wanted. And they followed me to the slaughterhouse. What a picture of the heart, the human heart, under the control of the strong man, the devil. Now, don't miss that Satan thinks himself sovereign. He guards the human heart, which is here called not simply a house, but it is called a palace. This prince of the power of the air is the god of this world. He wants all people to worship him. Our larger catechism, 192, says people by nature are wholly inclined to do evil, to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. And the amazing thing is that men do worship him. Do you see that man that's drunk out of his head? His heart is controlled by the devil. Do you see that other person that's shooting up? He is controlled by the evil one. Here's a college professor teaching young people that the Bible is not the word of God. His mind is under the control of the evil one. A father teaching his children how to curse God. There's a man that drools over lewd pictures. There's a woman that hates her husband. There's a child who sees inside at good discipline. There's disease and pain and death. Yes, the evil one gets his worship. The human heart is his palace. 
The heart is the palace of the devil. And so this is the condition of the lost. This is the condition of the unconverted. How can that change when they are guarded by the strong man who controls them? Well, there's only one way that that can change. If a stronger comes to set them free. And that is what has happened to all of us who know Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the second thing to see in the text. True conversion. A stronger than the devil has come. You see verse 22, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's the Lord Jesus. Jesus by the Holy Spirit is infinitely stronger in the heart of the sinner than the devil. This is the only way that true conversion can happen. We cannot regenerate ourselves. We cannot give ourselves the new birth. It is not by free will, but by free grace that we are slave. Free will is a slave. Jesus must come into the palace. Jesus must come into the heart. Jesus is the stronger that attacks the strong man. Only Jesus can cast the evil one from the heart. Only Jesus can change the heart. Only Jesus' blood can cleanse your soul. And so he overcomes him and disarms him and the devil... The devil is overwhelmed and he divides the spoil, verse 21 says. That's complete, irresistible grace. True conversion is irresistible because of this stronger one overcoming the strong man and the human heart. All opposition is conquered by Christ. Almighty grace changes the heart and changes the will. And since Jesus is such a conqueror, All should join with him, as he says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He is the stronger than the devil. This is true in his accomplishment of redemption when he shed his blood on the cross, and he said, now is the prince of this world cast out. It is also true in the application of redemption, which I'm convinced is the emphasis of this text. What a conquest, Jesus, if I may so testify, what a conquest he made of my heart. Ugly, defiled, dark, in need of a Savior, and only Jesus could have conquered my heart. Do you know this? Have you experienced this? Has the stronger come into your heart and cast out the strong man? So he describes in this context the condition of the lost. He describes this great and true conversion, the stronger who casts out the devil, the strong man who controls the palace of the human heart. But now I find it very interesting that he moves to false conversion. You'd think he would end on this high note, wouldn't you? Let's all hear about the victory of the gospel, the victory of Christ, but he doesn't do that. Because he intends to contrast the true with the false. And with these Pharisees, he does not end on the positive. Because they must be confronted with an important truth. Here our Lord describes the true condition of many a heart. Oh, how our generation needs to hear this, people of God. Is our generation less prideful than were the Pharisees? I think not. And so we move on the text, and the third thing that we see, and quite frankly, the most important thing that he wants to point out to the Pharisees, is false conversion. Now, grace always comes down to the individual. 
What is my heart like? Does Jesus dwell in my heart? Do I know God's grace? Has the infinitely stronger one than the devil set me free? Am I playing religious games? And Jesus is addressing the issues of true and false conversion in this passage. So look at verses 24 and following again. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person that passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So you see, the heart is still the devil's. Now don't be overly literal here. The Lord Jesus is trying to say something about the human heart. That's the point. He's making use of this this prior conversation with the Pharisees about the evil one, and he's making use of that in order to say something to the Pharisees and to many of us about our heart's condition. And so the heart still is the devil's house, his palace, but the devil withdraws for a while of his own will. And then the sinner reforms a bit. You see verse 25, when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Well, he reforms a bit. His house is swept. Uh, Perhaps he seems converted. Uh, Maybe he makes a profession of faith. Maybe he cleans up his mouth. Maybe he stops looking at pornography. Maybe he becomes a church member. He doesn't work on Sunday anymore. He joins the prayer meeting. His house is swept. It's swept. But if I may quote Charles Spurgeon, there is no repentance, no conviction, no struggling against depravity, No weeping before the Lord in prayer, no looking to the crucified Savior and reading pardon in his wounds, no agonizing struggle after holiness, no wrestling with evil. Joy came on as on a sudden, and the man thought himself saved. Miss Persian says, You talk to him about the work of the Holy Spirit in his soul, convicting him of sin, breaking him with the hammer of the law, or by the power of the cross pounding him in pieces, compelling him to feel that his righteousness is filthy rags, and he does not understand you. The unclean spirit is gone out of the man, and that is all. And we can find examples of this all through Scripture. You know, Pharaoh had his moments of repentance. You see my quotation marks. Did he not? Ahab cleaned himself up and seemed contrite for a while. A sinner can for a while reform and yet not be renewed. Because as old Matthew Henry says on this text, the palace, the house, the heart was swept, but it was not washed. Did you hear it? It was swept, but it was not washed. It was swept, but it was not cleansed. And it was garnished. Now, verse 25, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order, is the way the ESV translates it. That's a good translation, put in order. But the word here is cosmeto. It is put in order by adornment. Cosmetics. It is put in order by adornment by being garnished. 
So it seems the devil's left him for a while. He still owns the heart, but the man seems converted. And so he adorns his palace. He puts in some furniture. He brings some furniture into his heart. Maybe he hangs a few pictures, or he, he brings some curtains in. He hangs some curtains. Maybe he puts a few rugs on the floor. And you look at it, and you say, my, my, this should be in house beautiful. When have I seen such a nicely appointed house? Why, this man's house seems to be appointed with prayer and zeal and religious exercises. But the house, the palace, was swept. The house was garnished. The house was adorned. The house was, in some respects, put in order. But the house was not cleansed. His heart was still the devil's. And so the evil one has a right to return and enter into the man. And he returns, according to this text. Because you see, he has the key to the palace of every lost sinner. He has the key to the heart of every palace. And he'll open it with the keys of lies, or he'll open it with the key of lust, or perhaps the key of pride he takes out, or he fumbles through his keys, he says, ah, here's the key of destruction. Whatever the key is, he has the key to fit. And the evil spirit sees the place empty, according to this text, because Christ was not there. Jesus was not the occupant of this man's heart else the devil could not have entered. Since, as Henry says, the heart was swept but not washed, the evil demon fills it with all the evil that he can, and the man returns to all the evil that he had participated in before his so-called conversion. The place was empty, so the devil says, the place is unoccupied, let's have a party. So the way it's put here is, he brings seven other spirits, verse 26, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. They enter and dwell into this man. And then it says, verse 26, the last state of that person is worse than the first. Which immediately reminded me of Second Timothy, Second Peter 2.20, in which Peter reflects these very words when he talks about the apostates against whom he is writing in Second Peter 2. He says in Second Peter 2.20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter, reflecting on false conversion in Second Peter, reflects Jesus' very words in this passage. Because you see, people of God, there is not a worse man than that man who thinks himself to have been converted for a while, and then he walks away from the faith. Let me repeat it. There is not a worse man than that man that thinks himself converted for a while and then he walks away from the faith. 
He never knew the Lord at all. True conversion? Well, we have a hint at it in verse 28. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The truly converted man or woman loves the word, lives under the word, delights in the word, wants the word, wants to keep the word, obey the word, follow the word, bring everything in heart and life under the rule of the word. That's the true converted sinner, the truly converted sinner. So we read here about complete apostasy. And in Hebrews chapter 6, we could find something similar in Hebrews 10, but in Hebrews 6, it's put this way. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, this is not the description of a truly regenerate person, but a falsely converted person. In Hebrews 6, 4, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So you see, it is possible for a person to have a certain kind of enlightenment to, in a certain way, have tasted the heavenly gift, uh, to have tasted and shared in the common operations of the Holy Spirit, to have tasted the goodness of the Word of God through its preaching and reading, and, and even have a sense in his heart of the power of the age to come, it's possible to have all of that and not be truly converted. Dutch theologian pastor G.H. Kirsten made the statement, I have known those who in fearful remorse of conscience have rubbed the skin from their hands and feet and have carried on about their sins. But a few months later, after their consciences have been silenced, they reveal themselves as enemies of God in disservice. Then he adds wisely, if you frequently fear that your foundation is not in God because you do not know a radical change or because your conviction of sin was not as severe as you have heard of in other children of God, do not seek to be morbid. Examine yourself whether your soul genuinely yearns after Christ. Now that's it. We can talk a lot about marks of grace, and that's important. But this is fundamental. That person who thought himself converted for a while never yearned after the loveliness of Christ. He was attracted to all kinds of things, perhaps, a cleaned-up life or being a part of the church or maybe being respected or whatever it may be, but he did not yearn in his soul for Jesus. The truly regenerate person has a heart that has not simply been swept but cleaned, and it longs for Jesus. So this man in this text, his last state is worse than his first. And that is why the unclean spirit left the man to begin with, because his hellish plan undoubtedly was to ruin the man altogether. 
And so ultimately, it's what Jude says, Jude 12, these men are spots on your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit twice dead plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I told you. The Pharisees must be confronted in their pride with a very important truth. What is that truth? Well, here it is. The truth with which they, and undoubtedly we, need to be confronted is that self-reformation deepens unbelief. The latter end of that man was worse than his first. His palace was swept, not cleansed. Self-reformation. Oh, he did a lot. It looked good. But self-reformation only deepens unbelief. And when it is finally exposed, and he walks away, that man's last end is worse than where he began. Because you see, self-reformation not only deepens unbelief, self-reformation also deepens judgment. You heard Christ preach to you. You heard there is an only Savior. You heard of the blood atonement. You heard of the resurrection. And what did you do? You cleaned up yourself. You didn't come to Jesus. And so I want to end the sermon on a note of seriousness, that note that Jesus leads us to in the order in which he speaks here. It is Satan's purpose to possess, to bind, and to destroy. Thomas Boston says, an unregenerate state is hell in the bud. It is eternal destruction in embryo, growing daily, though thou dost not discern it. Death is painted on many a fair face in this life. Depraved nature makes men meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the damned in utter darkness. I will tell you, that kind of preaching is very rare today. Now, it's not everything, but it's something that needs to be preached. It's not the whole council, but it's part of the whole council that needs to be preached. And it is largely a missing note. I think that many of our evangelical churches are filling their memberships with unconverted people. Because carnal means are being used to attract carnal people, and they think that they're converted, but many, many, many are not. If as many people were born again as, say, in this country, they were born again, things would be different. And they say, oh, I believe Jesus died for sinners. I made a profession of faith. And on that base, their eternal state. But true faith is not just assent. It's fiducia. It's trust. It's reliance on the Savior. And I hope to say more about that because Jesus isn't done with the Pharisees here. We need to be sure that we do not encourage false conversions. Joseph Alline said, you may take soft lead and you can shape it into a plant. You can shape it into any form of an animal. You can shape it into the likeness of a man, but it remains lead. So an unsaved man, you see, can give up some things and become religious. He can change his appearance the way he looks, but his nature has never changed. 
So a line goes on to say, conversion is a deep work, a heart work. It makes a new man and a new world. It extends to the whole man, to the mind, to the members, to the motions of the whole life. And just to assent to the gospel, just a bare assent to the gospel is not conversion. Eline says, but I must tell you, Christ never did die to save impenitent and unconverted sinners so continuing. And so we need to hear it. I heard the opposite preaching when I was growing up. But we need to hear it. That man who says, I profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's never changed my heart, never changed my life, never made me a new man. Oh, maybe I cleaned up a bit. Maybe I look different. But I really don't have a yearning for Christ. My affections, my will, not really, not really altered, not radically changed. These are not true of me. But, you know, I'm saved. I made a profession. I walked down an aisle, whatever it was. I've never really believed and repented. That man, that man who has not repented, if he is not yearning for Christ, and I'm not saying that it will be perfect in any believer, it will not be perfect in any believer, but that man is lost. He's not saved. So let me tell you what the Pharisees did not understand in their darkened hearts, and I wonder who here does not grasp it either. They did not understand that they must be empty, but they were full of themselves. They did not see that they were needy. They did not truly reverence God, but would if they could have brought him to the bar of their own reason. They did not realize the magnitude of their sin. They did not realize the plague of their own souls. They did not truly listen, truly listen to the word of God. They did not believe and repent. They did not love God and still Now the Pharisaic heart is hard and does not love the Christ who sacrificed himself for sinners. They did not see that the point of life is not to figure out God's plan, but the point of life is to live for God's glory, period. They did not see salvation when he stood right in front of them. They did not see that they were self-deceived. They could not, even though they were responsible. And you know, that's a sad, sad plight. They did not see that they relied on their own righteousness. They did not see that you must be born again. They did not see that it was the inside of the cup that needed cleansing, not simply the outside. Do you see these things? Boys and girls here today, do you see these things? Do you understand these things? That you need a new heart. Praise God if you do, but if not, I say to us all, will you repent? Because the Bible teaches repent or perish. So you see, the sinner's need is desperate. His mind is at enmity with God. Man, since the fall, no longer bears the image of God morally and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Every sinner is a suppressor of the truth. In himself, every sinner is hopeless But God can do what man cannot. So may the stronger than the strong man break through and take someone captive this morning who has lived all of his life a captive of the devil. And may he direct, may God direct like an arrow his grace, his grace alone to that needy heart, that grace which only can free a sinner from self 
deception. That is my prayer. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.